Welcome to Jesus on Every Page, a podcast to help you discover and enjoy Christ in the Old Testament. Each podcast I answer your questions about the Old Testament, point you to great books and blogs, highlight the best Old Testament sermons and lectures and walk you through an Old Testament passage to demonstrate how to find and enjoy Jesus in the Old Testament. Labouring under a bit of a heavy cold this morning, which has dropped my voice another octave, but we'll press on because it's been a while since I've put together a podcast, hope to make them a bit more regular in the future, maybe aiming for once a week. First of all, Sermon of the Week. I want to recommend a great sermon on Rahab's Faith by Pastor Eric Mordike. You'll find it on Sermon Audio and it's called Saving Faith in Rahab. The sermon starts really at 21 minutes into the recording on Sermon Audio. So fast forward to 21 and listen right to the end for tremendous application, especially for those who are ashamed of their sexual past. Question of the week. Well, I was asked for some tips about preaching an Old Testament book consecutively in a congregation where that's not been the practice before. Consecutive expository preaching, of course, is become a very popular way of preaching New Testament books, but can that be successfully transferred to the Old Testament? In my own opinion, very few preachers can successfully sustain a consecutive expository series of sermons through an Old Testament book. I'd recommend doing short series of maybe three to four sermons in one book before moving on to another, or maybe doing short bursts of sermons in a book, taking a break, and then coming back to it again. Or, you know, maybe you could do some sermons on Abraham, then a few more sermons on the Psalms, move on to some sermons on Old Testament prophecies, maybe also some obvious Old Testament types. And so by doing that, you're you're really helping people to build a big picture of the Old Testament, rather than becoming experts in just one book in the Old Testament. Then, once you've managed to lay the foundations of the redemptive historical timeline, the bigger picture as it were, then maybe you can perhaps linger for a while in one book. But even when doing a series in the Old Testament, I like to break it up regularly and refresh myself and my hearers with New Testament sermons. Remember, if you start a series on Genesis, you're going to be there for a very long time. It's a massive book. You have to ask yourself if it's wise to spend a couple of years in a part of a Bible that's at the very earliest stages of God's progressive revelation. I believe much can be learned in the shadows, obviously, but it's good to enjoy the heat and light of the sunshine now and again as well. Another way of doing this might be to trace a theme through the Old Testament. So, for example, I've done series on the Angel of the Lord, also on the Covenants, the Messiah and the Psalms, or an Old Testament prophecies. And again, that enables you to trace the development of a theme as more and more biblical revelation is unfolded. So you get the big picture, as well as a clearer, fuller, and brighter picture as the Old Testament progressively develops. Well, in our last podcast, we took a big picture look at covenant theology. We surveyed the way God revealed his covenant of grace via his covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David and the new covenant promised in Jeremiah and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
Well, today in response to a listener's request, I want to zoom in and take a closer look at the covenant with David. In this podcast, we'll take a look at the inauguration of this covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and in next week's podcast, we'll look at how David understood and applied this covenant on his deathbed. But first, today, let's take a look at the institution of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Really, the background to this covenant is the way the whole history of Israel showed their need for a divinely chosen and approved king. The idea of kingship was present even in Genesis 1-2, to where God was not only clearly established as the sovereign of his whole creation, but also created man in his royal image to rule over his creation as a king. He had dominion over the creatures. Now, though some of that image and function was lost through sin, yet still much remained. As we continue through the books of Moses, we get frequent hints of a future king and monarchy. In Genesis 17, 16, And I will bless her, and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her, said God to Abraham. Genesis 35, 11, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Genesis 49, 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The royal kingly scepter is mentioned there in Judah. And then Numbers 24, verse 7 and 17 through 19, Balaam the false prophet says of Israel, He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. 17 through 19, I see him but not now, I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult, and so on. And these hints at kingship become formal divine policy in Deuteronomy 17, where God predicted that Israel would one day live in the promised land and want a king. He therefore gave instructions to regulate the institution and order of kingship. In Deuteronomy 17, 5 through 20, also look at Deuteronomy 28, 36. But in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 15, he says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you. Whom the Lord your God chooses one from among your brethren, you shall set as a king over you. So here we learn that Israel's king was to be a Hebrew. He must not be greedy or want to be like the pagans. He was to sit down and copy the Torah, the law, in the presence of the priests. Scripture was to be his guiding light. God's ideal was an earthly king ruling in the name of and by the authority of the heavenly king. God is the ultimate king who rules through earthly kings. That's the ideal, and that's what's predicted in Deuteronomy. And the next couple of books, especially Judges, shows us how much Israel needed such a king. Time and again, the disastrous deterioration of Israel in Canaan is explained by, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, every man was a king to himself, causing disaster. Judges therefore prepared the people for one king ruling under 
God. Then Ruth closes with a genealogy that climaxes with David. Samuel opens with Hannah's song, in which she sang of her hope of an anointed king raised up by God. 1 Samuel 2.10 The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's all being set up so nicely. <laughs> but everything landed with an anticlimactic thud when Saul became king and everything went belly up. Why was Saul such a disaster? It wasn't because Israel were never to have a king. We've shown God definitely planned a king for Israel. Basically, Saul was the wrong man, chosen for the wrong reasons, at the wrong time. He was Israel's man, not God's. Chosen for human reasons, not divine reasons. And it was man's timing, not God's. The man was wrong, and subsequent events reveal. The motive was wrong, to be like the other nations. And the moment was wrong. Instead of waiting for God's timing, the people showed a lack of trust in God by demanding a king immediately. And in essence... They were really rejecting God as their overall king and going their own way, putting their trust in a man to deliver them from their enemies. As God said, for Samuel 8, 7, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. And God allowed them to. He said, okay, try that experiment and, and just see where it gets you. So in summary, God did not forbid human kingship per se. He was for it from the beginning as long as he retained his supreme place over Israel as its God and king. That's where David comes into the picture. He's God's king at God's timing, a man after God's own heart. That's the context really for 2 Samuel 7. The Davidic covenant confirmed that God had always planned kingship for his people. In 2 Samuel 5, David was anointed king and confirmed as God's choice. In 2 Samuel 6, he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. Then, 2 Samuel 7 presents us with two proposals, David's and God's, which led David and Israel to expect an even greater future king. So let's first of all look at David's proposal and then at God's proposal. First of all then, David's, I think we could call it David's understandable proposal, but also God's emphatic rejection of it. Once David had brought the ark back into Jerusalem, he began to feel guilt that whereas he lived in a palace, the ark of God lived in a tent. 2 Samuel 7, 1-2 Israel's period of nomadic and transient existence had passed when they had settled in the promised land. Why then should God's residence still have the appearance of transience? Jehovah, like his people, had come to Canaan to stay. So, David proposed to build God a house. David lays his plans before God by consulting with Nathan the prophet, who initially thought it was a great idea, but then God intervened and said, No. God rejected David's proposal to build him a house. David's son would do that. And instead, God promised that he would build David a house. 2 Samuel 7.11 It's as if God said to David, This isn't the way I do things. You don't make proposals and plans and ask me to cooperate. 
I make the plans. And they're much bigger and better than your plans, so let's just sweep yours off the table and look at my plan instead. You won't build me a house, but I will build you a house. And what's interesting here is the Hebrew word for house can mean two things. It can mean a dwelling place, but also a dynasty, a succession of kings. Now, when David used the word house, I want to build God a house, he was using it in the sense of dwelling place. Well, when God used the word house, he used it in the sense of dynasty. He said, I'll build you a dynasty. Just as in the United Kingdom, the royal family is called the House of Windsor. God's really saying, I'm going to build a house of David. So basically, when David proposed to build God a dwelling place, which would be ultimately temporary and localised, God rejected the proposal and instead decreed that he would build David a dynasty, which would be forever and wherever. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17. So David made an understandable proposal, but God emphatically rejected it. And God then made a gracious proposal, which David humbly accepted. Let's look at that, God's gracious proposal. It's interesting, you know, we call this the covenant of David, but the word covenant isn't actually used in this chapter. It's later scripture that does look back at what happened here and calls it a covenant. 2 Samuel 23, 5, Psalm 89, verse 3. Also, all the essential elements of a covenant are here in 2 Samuel 7. A covenant is a relationship initiated and imposed by God with life or death consequences. That's what we have here. This covenant contained three great promises to the sons of David. First, a great kingdom. His kingdom would last forever. Verses 12, 13 and 16. Second, a great house. He, that's David's son, will build a house for the Lord's name. Verse 13. And 13, a great relationship. Father-son relationship, actually. Verses 14 through 16. So, when were these three promises fulfilled? A great kingdom and a great house and a great relationship. Well, David and most of his sons were a major disappointment. Gradually, the prophets began to look ahead and away, really, from David and his sons with the hope that eventually a son of David would arise who would fulfill this covenant and inherit the promises. For example... In Isaiah 9 verse 7, we read, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Or Isaiah 16 5, In mercy the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 5-6 Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Amos 9, 11 On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repaired its damages. I will raise up its ruins and repair it, rebuild it as in the days of old. So you see here clearly, we could point to many other instances in the prophets, where Israel's prophets are 
looking ahead. They're saying, there's got to be a better son of David who will really fulfill this covenant and inherit the promises. And the New Testament authors clearly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of these promises and prophecies. For example, the angel announced to Mary, he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, 32-33 Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Luke 1, 68-69 We read in Luke 2, verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into David, sorry, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Jesus fulfilled this covenant. He satisfied the obligations of this covenant and bore the punishment of repeated covenant violations. God is saying to David, I will build you a house. I will build you a dynasty. I will build for you an everlasting king with an everlasting king. David humbly accepts this. David looks at this promise, this covenant promise, and sees clearly God does everything. I do nothing. And so in verse 18 he says, Who am I? Who am I? O Lord God. And he's so overwhelmed with God's mercy, he has to sit down. There's no no rebellion here. He's basically renouncing all his own plans and proposals and accepting God's word and God's free grace. He he can find nothing in himself to explain this. He, He says, who am I, Lord God? He puts his I beside the Lord God and he finds it just a, an impossible comparison. In First Chronicles 17.17, 17, another account of this incident, David's recorded as saying, You have regarded me according to the state of a man of high degree. David's saying, you know, the future is so bright. It, it so outweighs the past that he sums up all that's happened to him so far as a small thing. God had dealt amazingly graciously with David. And yet David looks back and he says, compared with what he's going to do, this is this is nothing. And he and he asks this question, Is is this the manner of man, O Lord God? That's verse nineteen. There are different ways of taking that question. Some people have interpreted it as do men usually deal like this? with one another he's saying the way that God has dealt with me here is that the way men usually deal with men no it's implied really it's a rhetorical question expecting the answer no is this the manner of man is this the way men treat men no men deal much more commercially eye for eye tooth for tooth pound for pound dollar for dollar he's saying God's not doing that here 
Another way of interpreting this question is, is this your usual way of dealing with men, Lord? Is this the manner of your dealings with man, O Lord God? Again, he's, he's really asking a rhetorical question. And then he's just amazed. Is God so gracious towards man? But the third way of taking this question, and in fact the third way of translating it, is what I believe is the right way to take it. And it's the way Walter Kaiser interprets it. And he translates this question actually as a an indicative, as a statement. He says, and this is a charter for all humanity, O Lord God. <laughs> it's really interpreting it in a missiological way. He's saying, what God has just promised here is a message for everyone. It's a message of grace for everyone. It's a charter for all humanity. It's the fulfilment of Genesis 12 verse 3. In you, said God to Abraham, shall all families of the earth be blessed. They think here is mankind's charter. Here is, here is mankind's hope. And David's response to that is, and what more can I say? What can David say more? He, love is struck dumb by this unspeakable gift. He's saying, this exceeds all my asking and all my praise. The blessings here are, are more than he could understand or describe. All he can say is, praise, praise, praise. And all we can say is, join with the blind man in the Gospels. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Thank you.